This episode of Pastor Well was recorded in the spring of 2020 during the coronavirus crisis. We were using Zoom to capture these episodes, so you may notice a difference in the audio quality. Still, we're grateful for the opportunity we've been provided to interview guests that would have otherwise been really difficult to get in the studio. We hope you'll enjoy it, and thanks for listening to Pastor Well. Conversations with prominent pastors, teachers, and leaders. This is the Pastor Well Podcast from Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Now your host, Dr. Herschel York. Hello and welcome to the Pastor Well Podcast. This is Herschel York, Dean of the School of Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm also pastor of the Buckrun Baptist Church in Frankfurt. The Pastor Well Podcast is dedicated to helping those who serve the Lord Jesus Christ be faithful in ministry. We like to engage in conversation with people who will encourage us and who have modeled it for us in some way. And today, I can't tell you the joy in my heart to have Dr. Adam Dooley here to talk with us about that. Uh, Welcome, Adam. Glad that you are finally on Pastor Well. Well, I'm glad you finally invited me. I've I've been waiting all this time, this, this great list of people you have, and finally you've asked me to come. We won't tell everyone how much I well, paid you. Well, uh, you know, I've wanted to have you for a long time, but uh, it it feels almost like nepotism because, well, how would you describe uh, our relationship? Well, you're a second father to me. I mean, truly, in all seriousness, you are um, w- probably my closest personal friend. You have been my chief mentor in the ministry. Uh, you mean as much to my wife as you do to me and uh, our our family. And so uh, it, it's really hard to describe all that our relationship means to me. Well, uh, that's exactly how I feel, you know, and uh, you really are like a, a son to me. I, I take such joy in your ministry, just in case people don't know, you are currently the pastor of the Inglewood Baptist Church in Jackson, Tennessee. You've written several books, uh, one with Dr. Jerry Vines called Passion in the Pulpit, which has a, a brilliant uh, thesis, I think, of, of how we exegete emotion from the text, that it's a, the job of the pastor when he preaches to reflect the inherent emotion in that text. It's not about how we feel or what we're experiencing, but there's an emotional uh, content in that text. Uh, where did you get that idea? I think the reason you think it's so brilliant is because it was born at your <laughs> PhD seminar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, it, did. it came up in a PhD seminar. Uh, but, you know, here's the thing. There have been a lot of great ideas that I've had, but I'm, I just am too lazy to write them myself. And I tell PhD students, this would be a great dissertation topic. And they've all turned out well. Yeah, well, that's so, exactly what but, I was going to say. Mine is the book that you were just too lazy to write. That's why you love it so much. But uh, God probably put the idea in your heart before mine. But I, I love developing that and uh, writing about that. that I've got to tell one little detail. Uh, you you tried to acknowledge this. Uh, in your original introduction, which I read, you you really did give me that kind of credit, and you said you no longer know where my ideas end and yours begin, and your publisher took that line out. 
They did. They took it out. I did my best to give you the credit for it. But that's so true because we have had so many conversations in so many places, not just the classroom, but just in the rhythm of life. And uh, I say a lot of things that I'm probably parenting you and don't even know it. So uh, that's not just true about preaching either, by the way. Yeah, the, that's but that's an important thing in life. I'm I'm truly honored to have been a mentor in your life. Uh, but man, guys did that for me. Uh, there's not a day that goes by that I don't uh, quote. I mean, some of them people have never heard of. Of course, my dad was my primary influence. Adrian Rogers, of course, was just massive in my life. I, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think of something Adrian Rogers taught me and implement it. And a lot of what I've taught you is simply stuff I got from him. Uh, and then there, there are men that nobody other than my small little group of independent Baptists I grew up with would know a guy like H.H. H. Overby, uh, John Hatcher, Harold Bratcher. I mean, there, there are men like this that most people don't know about, but man, I learned from them and they influenced my life uh, every day. And so uh, mentoring is an important part of ministry, don't you think? Yeah, there, there's no question. I would say more than half of what I do in the pastorate is the result of mentoring. Um, you know, what I got in the classroom there at seminary was so important, and I don't ever want to diminish that. But a lot of people can uh, gain knowledge in a classroom that they don't know how to use in a local church. And so I, I, think, I think mentoring bridges that gap. And uh, so much of what I've done, I, I watched my pastor growing up. I watched you do uh, in uh, there at Buck Run, and um, you know, in some of the places we where we've spoken together. Uh, I, I think we're all just creatures of what we see in others. That's right, and that's, I mean, that's the model Jesus gave us: is uh, that we should be making disciples. Paul talked about committing to faithful men that they in turn might teach others. So none of us should claim originality uh, and all of us owe a debt to those that have come before us. Furthermore, I think we owe a debt to those that are coming after us. Uh, you, you have mentored people. Uh, you and I uh, just uh, a few months ago went out to Phoenix where Dr. Brian Arnold was uh, inaugurated as the president of Phoenix seminary. He, he was a young man in your church uh, that you mentored and discipled. That's right. When I was uh, at Southern, um, I tried to create what we had in the classroom there in my local church. I had about 12 guys that I took through a book on preaching. I let all of them preach just like we did in your classroom and really tried to step into their lives. And, you know, that has translated now into how I pastor uh, and disciple people in the church. Every week I meet with five men and just pour into them the way others have poured into me. And I would say that's where real ministry happens. Uh, as much as I love preaching, there's an accountability element that is sometimes lost on Sunday mornings that you can really bring to uh, a, a table where you're looking at four or five other men, uh, men with men, women with women, and you just really pour into one another and say, don't just do what I say, do what I do, and here's how I do what I do. Uh, so yeah, yeah. the greatest gains I've seen in ministry have been in settings like that. 
That's exactly right. You and I, I can remember the, I can remember maybe not the first day, but the first time I noticed you in, in my preaching class, uh, sitting there and you were, you were young. Uh, you were, I'll tell you what I liked about you. You were serious about preaching. You were not too serious about yourself. And uh, that's the kind of guy I like. Yeah. I, I, I like, I like a guy who doesn't take himself too serious, but takes the things of the Lord seriously. So, uh, you and I are, we've been in each other's lives. I've got to tell a couple of things just so people get a context because I really want to talk about your most recent book, uh, uh hope when life unravels, because it is an incredible story about your son, Carson's leukemia. But to give it a context and the way it happened, even in our relationship. So you were my student, uh, both at the MDiv level and the PhD. I was your supervisor. Uh, We went on mission trips together. You went on a trip to Brazil with me. Now, that one was notable for a lot of reasons. Uh, I'm trying to figure out how to tell this. Uh, So I I speak Portuguese, uh, and I taught you fake Portuguese. (laughs) That's right. I speak fake Portuguese fluently to this day. Yeah, yeah. So uh, instead of telling you the real phrase for uh, thank you, I told you a phrase that is a statement of gastrointestinal confession. Uh, And for for three days, you used that phrase. And uh, every Brazilian would look at you like, "What? what did you just say? And you'd say it again. And then you'd say to me, I don't think they understood me. I'd say, oh, you just got to speak up. You just got to say it louder <laughs> or, or, or your, your accent. Say it slowly and deliberately, you know. Three days it took you to figure out uh, that I, I had not taught you correctly. So th- those are the kinds of things that I've done to you uh, through the years. We laugh a lot when we're together. I remember one time we went to the Southern Baptist Convention together and room together and like I, I took pictures of your skincare products and tweeted them. <laughs> yeah. Th- now I, I do want to say our relationship is congenial enough that you do embellish some of these stories. <laughs> I don't have skincare <laughs> products just so your audience knows, but I, I love that you want to tell that story. Yes. Well, they were something, I don't know, they were in your suitcase, you know, so <laughs> Maybe hair products. <laughs> hair products, yeah. Uh, and uh, was it, I don't know if there was there was there Rogaine in there. I'm not sure. The moral of these stories is I have learned as much uh, about how not to treat people from you as I have learned how to disciple people from you. <laughs> well, we always have fun, you know. So I had you teach a class for me at Southern several years ago, uh, and. You and Tanya and I went out to eat on a Thursday night. I will never forget it. And in a seafood restaurant. And we were like little kids. We were laughing so hard we were crying. And uh, I know people around us were, I think, annoyed with three adults acting like kids in church, you know, who couldn't stop laughing. And uh, But we had a great time. That Sunday afternoon, uh, right after church, you know, my phone rang, and it was you. And... I had just seen you the previous Thursday night. We'd had this incredible time. But immediately when I heard the tension in your voice, I knew something was was terribly wrong. Uh, tell us about that day. 
Well, that was July 10th, 2011, and uh, that's really where my new book begins. Uh, I had been in Kentucky teaching at Southern and uh, really had one of the greatest weeks of my life. That night was part of just great visits with family and friends, and uh, we headed back to Mobile, Alabama, where I was pastoring at the time. Got in late, and uh, my wife, Heather, had noticed a uh, rash on my son's neck that left her very concerned. It was bright red, but it was smooth to the touch. And so when we got up Sunday morning, uh, headed off to church like we always do, she said, you know, I think I need to take Carson to the pediatrician and get this checked out. And so she did. And uh, I went, I preached, uh, concluded the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about a house built on the rock and a house built on the sand and really charged my people to build their lives on the right foundations, uh, you know, not knowing what kind of storms are going to come. And as soon as I finished that sermon, I had a text message from Heather saying, you need to come. Uh, They're running some tests, and I'm scared. By the time I got there, we were awaiting the test results, and by 2 o'clock that day, uh, we received the the terrible news that Carson had leukemia. And there was just so much panic in my heart that uh, I didn't know what to do. And that's when I picked up the phone and called you. Uh, I have often joked and said... uh, you know, my number one rule in the ministry is to just do whatever Herschel says to do. Uh, but there's a lot of truth there. <laughs> and so I didn't know what to do. And just by impulse, I picked up the phone and called you. And I'm glad I did because it really, it helped me regain my composure. I really needed to lead my family well at that moment. We had some big medical decisions that we had to make. And it just had a, a soothing uh, impact on me. There, there's parts of that conversation I'll never tell anyone about, but uh, it really helped me turn the corner and and start to handle the situation in front of us. One thing I knew, Adam, was that in spite of how it felt or how it looked at the moment, God had been preparing you for that moment. Yeah. Yeah, I your whole I can, life. Yeah, I can look back on my life and see that. You know, um, I think God prepared me as evidenced by the people He put in my life. So, you know, you're an example of that. I can go all the way back to my elementary school days when I was in the sixth grade. My favorite teacher had a brain tumor. His name was Abe Anglin. He had multiple surgeries to remove that tumor, and I used to take care of him in our classroom. Uh, he died when I was in the eighth grade at age 26. And I remember the grief of that and having to process that. I think God used him to prepare me for that day in 2011. My executive pastor at the time uh, had a daughter who was treated at St. Jude Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, 30 years prior. And he was right there in my life at that moment as well. So it's incredible to see how there was just a convergence of people and influence and experiences 
that helped me to step up and uh, walk through that moment with my family and with the Lord. What I love about your book, uh, Hope When Life Unravels, is that you you use your story and you tell your story, but it's not it's not based on your story. It's based on the scripture, and it really does help people who are going through anything. I mean, there's there are all kinds of circumstances in which we find ourselves that we don't understand why God has allowed this. We don't know what the outcome will be. We're terrified of what might happen. And you, throughout that book, just take scriptural principles and apply and help suffering Christians think through the providence of God and the trustworthiness of God. Right. Yeah, I really had two goals for writing the book, and one was very personal, but the other is exactly what you just stated. The The personal goal was Carson was just three years old when he was diagnosed. He was treated for three years, and so he... Uh, he has begun to forget, uh, you know, all that we went through. And uh, he was forgetting even while we were there. By the time he was uh, six years old, he had forgotten much of what happened at the beginning. So I kept a journal, and I wanted to capture those moments where God really grew us and taught us so that he could remember it. But I also wanted him to learn from it and use the things God taught us whenever he faces uh, difficulties in his life that have nothing to do with cancer. I probably should say uh, to your listeners, Carson is 13 now, and he's doing fantastic. He's, he's been cancer-free since 2014, and uh, you would never know that he had leukemia at this point. So I, I wanted to capture what God taught us to give to him as a gift. And God really just burdened me that, hey, this might be valuable to other people. So it really isn't a book about cancer. Uh, I, I, I tell things that happened to Carson, but to raise more common questions that people ask with the goal of helping anyone who's facing any kind of trial look to the Lord and depend upon the Lord. So I, I hope we've been able to do that in the book. And if I can say something that on one level is sort of unpleasant, what you write in that book would be have been just as true had the Lord taken Carson home to be with him. Yeah, that is true. In fact, I have a chapter about that. We have, uh, we have a number of friends that we made at St. Jude who lost their children. I mentioned two of them by name in the book, and the point of, of the chapter Uh, much like at the end of Job's suffering, is that God was just as faithful to them as he was to us. Now, the outcome of our trial was different, but God's faithfulness remained. God's purposes stood. uh, God's glory was magnified in different ways in each circumstance. But the bottom line is, is, he's God, we are not. And uh, the, uh, the, the greatest lesson I think God taught us through the whole ordeal was that God really is enough. If you have the Lord, you have all you need. Uh, and it's not uh, outcomes that make us or that sustain us. Uh, it's the Lord right. that sustains us. 
And we, right. we, we really can endure all things through Christ who gives us strength. And uh, I'm thankful that I know that. I've preached that for years. But there's a difference in preaching what you know and preaching what you've mm. lived. So it's an incredible gift that God's given to our family. All healing is temporary. You know, we, we, we're still going to face death, and our hope is in the, the resurrection. And that's, that's the ultimate healing that we, we live for and long for. Uh, I would, if a child of mine had cancer, I'd plead with God and beg God and do everything I could for that child's life to be uh, sustained and spared as well. But our hope is in him, not in the particular answer to the prayer. Well, that's so true, and uh, one of the things that I have forecasted in my mind is that, you know, as you said, I pray God will give Carson a long, fulfilling life of building God's kingdom, but at some point, uh, he will face another health crisis that will end in his death, and uh, I tried to write the book in such a way that the lessons of this book will help him just as much then as they are helping us now Uh, because it really isn't tied to the outcome and what you said is so true Uh, all suffering is temporary not because all suffering goes away in this life but ultimately because this life uh, pales in comparison to the life that we have in eternity Uh, And so uh, the temporary nature of it isn't limited to circumstance, time, or space. You did not go through this alone. You went through this with your incredible wife, Heather. Tell us about Heather. How would you meet her? Uh, Well, I met Heather. I preached revival in her church. And let me just tell you, it was the best revival I've ever had. (laughs) Uh, She is the greatest love offering I ever received from a church. And uh, we, uh, you know, it was one of those old-fashioned revivals where I preached from Sunday to Friday. We just conversed all week and uh, had our first date one week later, uh, and it was great. And that's about the time that uh, I got you involved in all of it. I know you love to tell that story, too, so uh, there's your segue, but... um, you tell it. You tell it. Well, uh, we had been dating just a few months, I think, at that point, and she w- she really is incredible. I mean... She's incredible, yeah. She She's beautiful on the inside and the outside. She makes me a better pastor. Uh, she made me a better pastor even when we were dating. Um, and uh, so incredible was she that it was... C- perplexing to everyone what are you waiting on to ask this girl to marry you and uh, we were in your office one day talking about it and I think you had enough of it and (laughs) uh, you you picked up the phone you called Heather and you basically prepared an arranged marriage for us Uh, you got her to sign on the dotted line and give the commitment and uh uh, asked for an assurance that she would say yes. All of this while I was listening, and you know, she, I'll, I'll never forget her giggling on the phone. And uh, 
wondering what this was about. Uh, but shortly after that, uh, I indeed yeah. proposed. I'll never forget. I, I, so I, I asked her, if he asked you, are you going to say yes? And she giggled. I said, no, I want an answer. She said, yes. I said, okay, hang on. And I handed you the phone. <laughs> and you went, hi, Heather. Then you were all a sheepish. And said, I'll talk to you later. And uh, I think that was right before Thanksgiving or somewhere in there. And uh, a ring was was forthcoming pretty soon after that. I should say, too, that was also right after you and Tanya and Heather and I, we all went to dinner one night, and uh, you guys just were glowing about... First night. First night. I said, this is your gal. First night, Tanya and I met her. We were both looking at you and saying, what on earth are you waiting for? She was... I mean, I just saw she was a perfect fit for you. And... And she has not disappointed. Uh, I was as I was as sure about her for you as I was about Tanya for me. Uh, and uh, that that has proven to be a hundred percent true. And you know, going back to what you said earlier, when you think about God preparing me for for Carson's illness, uh, God giving me Heather was part of that preparation. Obviously, there'd be no Carson apart from Heather, but. I can't imagine having walked through that trial with anyone else. Uh, Heather has such a stabilizing, calming effect on our home. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has built a haven of protection around all of us. And, uh, you know, she was pregnant during Carson's sickness. And so we were traveling to St. Jude by airplane every week for 128 consecutive weeks. She did a few of those trips on the front end. We were taking turns. Then she uh, moved along in her pregnancy and was unable to make that trip. So, you know, a lot of people give me uh, far more credit than I deserve because I made most of those trips with Carson. What they did not see was that Heather, uh, our our home was like a fortress. Uh, Germs could not penetrate. And uh, she made sure that he had all of his medication when he needed it, that everything was clean, that he wasn't exposed, that uh, he was at the ER if uh, his fever spiked even just a bit. I mean, we, we really walked on pins and needles for three years, and she bore the brunt of most of that. Uh, I, I, had, I got on airplanes and got to spend... 36 hours every week with my son, which was great. I'll always treasure that. And that was tiring physically, but I think the emotional and the spiritual toll that she endured was far greater than what I did on those trips to Memphis. And I want to be respectful, but I think uh, you say enough in the book that this, this is sort of public knowledge. You were going through tough times at your church, too. There, were, there was... Uh, a really a, a struggle in your church simultaneously with your son's cancer treatments. Yeah, it, it was terrible. Um, and I, I, I will speak about it because it is public knowledge. Uh, there are things about it I'll never speak publicly, but I, I had mm-hmm. people in my church who were frustrated over the kind of music we were singing and uh, one of the things I share in the book is a letter I received where a member actually made the accusation that 
Carson had cancer because of our song selection at the church. And so uh, that began a movement wow. of uh, that began a movement of uh, of a disgruntled group uh, beginning to meet. And they would always meet on Tuesday evenings because Carson and I flew to Mobile on Tuesdays. So they knew I wasn't in town. That group grew to probably 75 people or so. And they plotted my dismissal from the pastorate. Uh, they, were, uh, they were frustrated because I couldn't get back in time on Wednesday evenings to, to preach in a Wednesday night service. And uh, it it felt like the wheels were coming off there. It felt a lot bigger in the moment than it does now looking back at it. Sure, but, yeah. Uh, I really thought I might be fired. Uh, I, want to, I want to be quick to say that most of the people in the church I was pastoring were not part of that and are just as horrified by what we're talking about as, as you and I are. But um, it was awful. They, they mailed letters yeah, yeah. to the entire church rolled, and uh, it all came to a head on a Sunday morning, and by God's grace, we endured that. But I want to tell you, that's the only time I ever wanted to quit the ministry, and I really contemplated it. Uh, but what I could not shake was just God's call on my life, and I could never grow comfortable with stepping outside of that call on my life. So that's what helped me endure it. This is what I teach day one in my pastoral ministry class. You might even remember the lecture is that the, the success of your ministry depends on the strength of your call. And by success, I'm not talking about pastoring a big church or writing a lot of books. I'm talking about faithfulness in ministry. But when you get in those moments where it's awful, nobody appreciates you, you, you're, you might be fired, you're, you're doing the right thing, and yet uh, they're coming at you anyway. If you're not called, you won't stick. You'll, you'll say, I can do something else. But when there's a fire in your bones that you cannot keep silent, you've got to preach the word, you'll endure even that for the sake of the gospel. Well, and how many times do we teach our people, look, if you're going to walk with God, it can't be rooted in your feelings because that's always going to change. It's got to be rooted in what you know about the Lord and what you know uh, from his word. And uh, that's probably the first time I really had to ignore my feelings completely. that's probably the first time in my ministry when people weren't cheering me on and I felt like I had real enemies in the church and oh it was so painful it was so disheartening but as you and I have often talked I I wouldn't go back and change that now I see it as a gift because I know that my calling is strong and secure I know that I'll serve the Lord when people aren't applauding me. Uh, I thought that before, but I didn't know that. And so even in that valley, uh, the Lord redeemed that suffering and is using it for good. And, and I'm thankful for that. I truly am. Well, I'm thankful for uh, God's work in your life. It's been 
marvelous to watch uh, up close. Uh, I'm really thrilled about your ministry there at Inglewood. You're committed to expository preaching. You're you're a believer uh, in that. So what are you what are you preaching right now? Well, uh, we're in a little bit of a transition right now, and so uh, our worship pastor is leaving us. He's accepted a call to uh, Brentwood Baptist, uh, Travis Cottrell, and so I've been doing a series uh, about Jesus building his church, and it's called Let the Church Rise. That mirrors a pattern that I have. Uh, typically, I will go through a book of the Bible and then do a short uh, thematic series that, that's expositional, but not through a book, just mm-hmm. to catch our breath between uh, longer series. Uh, when I finish the current series I'm in, I'll preach through the book of Job, and then I'm going to follow that with the Ten Commandments to finish out the year. So uh, that's where we're headed in 2000. About how many weeks are you going to devote to the book of Job? Well, uh, I have 18 messages uh, for Job, but I'm not sure if I'm going to utilize all of those. The The cycle of conversations with his friend is a bit uh, redundant, yeah, yeah. and so I'm yeah. probably going to combine those and, and maybe reduce it to eight messages. Yeah, that's doable. Have you ever read Calvin's sermons on Job? I have, Yes. Uh, you know, it, it's just really good stuff on uh, his take on suffering in the life of a Christian. Uh, yeah, you, uh, I'm, I'm sure since you've read them, you've, they probably saturate your own thinking. And I, they do, and I, and I think, if memory serves me correctly, you pointed me to that the first time I preached through the book of Job, which was in 2011. So... Uh, when Carson was diagnosed uh, with cancer, we, we lived in Memphis for six weeks at the Ronald McDonald House. When I came back to the church for my first series after his diagnosis, it was the book of Job. And uh, we had a conversation about those uh, commentaries. Yeah, I recall that. How old were you when you felt called to preach? I was 17 years old. Uh, I was involved in the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And uh, I, I did not yield to the call until I was 18, but it was a, about a 14-month process of getting lots of opportunities to preach and people speaking into my life that, uh, you know, here's what God's doing, and and uh, I've been preaching over 20 years now. How old were you when you became a pastor? Uh, let's see, my I was 19 years old uh, for my first church position, which was youth ministry. I was a terrible youth minister. Uh, and so I was 21 years old when I uh, accepted my first pastorate. Uh, and you were how old when you got married? I was 25 when I got married. So, man, uh, I, you know, being single as a pastor is hard. Dating and getting engaged and all that as a pastor is really a challenge, isn't it? Terrible. And as much as you make fun of me for that phone call, that's part of why it was just so <laughs> difficult. You know, I mean, how do you ask a girl out? I mean, do you invite her to read Lamentations with you? I, I, I never was good at that. So it was like, 
Heather and I met in church, which was perfect, and clearly there was a connection there. But even then, that first uh, date uh, where I asked her uh, to join me for dinner, it was awkward, and I would not want to go back and hear that conversation if God recorded yeah, it anywhere. <laughs> I can't even imagine it. I can't imagine it. You, you had no game. Uh, but, uh, again, that was a good, that was a good thing. That was a good thing. Well, look, I, I, I want to, I like to end every pastor well podcast with what I call the twinkle of an eye around just some random questions quick, uh, that you can, uh, just answer. All right. Uh, do you, what was the first sermon you preached? What was your first text? First text was, uh, second Corinthians chapter five. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things are made new. Was it any good? It was terrible. (laughs) (laughs) It was expositional. It was expositional, but I would not say it was good. Uh, Who who first introduced you to the concept of expository preaching? My pastor, Randy McFerrin, Bethel Baptist Church, Berea, Kentucky. He uh, was really in... the vein of, of Jerry Vines. Uh, he would take a group to uh, First Jacksonville to their pastor's conference every year. So he introduced me to it, actually helped me put my first sermon together. Uh, it wasn't bad, by the way, because of him. That was all on me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but he, he taught me how to, I'll never forget, he said every text and, and really every verse, if possible, you want to explain it, you want to illustrate it, and you want to apply it. And I still follow that basic trajectory in every sermon that I preach. Praise God for a pastor who teach a young man in his church to do that. That's great. What's the What's the favorite sermon series you've ever preached? Uh, whether it be from a, a biblical book or what's the favorite thing you've ever done? You know, I love to preach the Sermon on the Mount because um, mm. you get a glimpse of what life in the kingdom is like. Uh, the the result of your faith is on full display there. And also, as I said earlier, I was preaching through that when my son was diagnosed. And uh, interesting, after his last chemo treatment, I went back to my church and preached that final sermon from Matthew 7, verse 24 through 29, Sermon on the Mount. Two houses one on the sand, one on the rock. I preached it again after having walked through that trial from a completely new perspective. So that's where his treatment wow. started and where it ended. And uh, that, that's always been special to me. That's great. Favorite movie? My favorite movie. Oh, now see, now you're showing how much game I don't have here. Yeah, but that's okay. Uh, you know, uh, right now, uh, I love that new Pilgrim's Progress movie. Uh, my kids really? love that movie. Have you seen it? I have. In fact, uh, the wife of the guy who made it hit me up on Twitter one day and said, you got to see this movie. I said, oh, I've seen it. I took my grandchildren to see it. Kids love it. They watched it for the first time, and they said, Dad, somebody should put this in a book. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> uh, that's great. Uh, what's the favorite car you've ever owned? This is easy. Uh, a 1999 yellow Ford Mustang. Uh, it was my second car uh, that I bought. I paid cash for it because of the influence of my father. 
And I drove that car until Heather and I got married. Yeah, I, I remember that car. Yeah, I do remember that car. All right, if you could go anywhere in the world today, no COVID-19, no, no problems, you and Heather could go somewhere, where would you take her? I would take her to Hawaii, and there's a little inside joke here. I'm not going to tell you what part of Hawaii, but I would take her to Hawaii. <laughs> yeah. Okay, what's the name of the island that Tanya and I go to in Hawaii? can't remember the name of the island. It's in Hawaii, though. You don't really remember the name? Why? You go to the island Hawaii. Yes. Yeah. All right. I just got to, as we close, tell listeners that we had this whole discussion. It was like, who's on first? When I, where Adam's going, yeah, but what island you go to? We go to Hawaii. Yeah, I know you go to Hawaii, but what's the name of the island? It's Hawaii. Well, what part? Logical question. It's Hawaii. They call it the big island. Yeah. Well, you I never hope, answered me. <laughs> I hope you get to go to the big island one day and enjoy it. It's, it's my favorite place. Hey, man, love you dearly. Thank God for your ministry. It's uh, just a joy to have you and uh, appreciate you making time to be with me. I'm Pastor Well. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Thanks to all of you for tuning in. And uh, if you've not yet subscribed, please make sure you do so on YouTube, on your favorite podcast app, so you, you don't miss an episode. Tell other people about it. Like us on YouTube. I look forward to seeing you again next time on Pastor Well. <laughs>